Live from WNUR News, I'm Helen Bradshaw. You're listening to the 6 o'clock news on WNUR 89.3 FM, HD1, Evanston, Chicago. Heartbreak and disappointment. Northwestern students were reluctant to trust the university after Morty's infamous Friday night email. If the university makes the decision to bring students back kind of in full, uh, we'll be doing that with no expectations of the option to kind of send people home. A rally cry for democracy in Evanston. Vote him out! Vote him out! And tensions over a COVID death scoreboard throw a quiet suburb into political frenzy. You don't want to eliminate the teaching of slavery in school! Oh, please. Oh, please. Those stories tonight. This quarter, we're switching it up. On Mondays, you'll hear packages about the latest news concerning Northwestern, Evanston, Chicago, and more. We'll close out the week on Fridays with special guests, arts and entertainment news, and our famous oddities segment. Students knew this academic year was going to be different, but most didn't expect to be reconstructing their living situation just days before scheduled move-in. Students tell reporter Angelina Campanile their reactions to Northwestern's last-minute decisions. Incoming Northwestern students like Jasmine Reef were anxious to get to campus after remote learning since March. Everything was set until she received Morty's infamous Friday night email in August. Everything was just like gone. And it was just like, oh, okay, I guess that's how fall quarter is going to go and probably the whole year. The August 28th email was signed by University President Morton Shapiro and Provost Kathleen Haggerty. It announced first and second year students would not be allowed on campus, with limited exceptions, and all Greek housing would be closed. The decision came after a meeting with Northwestern Medicine and state and local health officials. Do you think that the decision to not have you guys come to campus formally, did it do anything? Did it have an actual effect? No. No. Because there are a lot of kids who moved into like the hotels. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot of kids who moved into like Airbnbs in Chicago and Evanston. And there are kids that I know who are like, well, if they don't let us back on campus in winter, I'm going to move to Evanston anyways. Many students like third year psych major Cole Sias were frustrated with the university's last minute decision. Sias planned to live in her sorority house, but found an apartment in Evanston last minute. They needed to talk about the possibility of this happening weeks before they actually sent the email because they kept saying, no, we're going to be fine. We're going to open like usual. And then what was it? Two weeks before move in, they said, actually, JK, never mind. And everyone freaked out. They needed to handle that better. Sophomore Bridget Devine is currently studying biology from her home in Ohio. She's scheduled to take organic chem sequence labs winter quarter. Devine is concerned that not having an in-person experience will hurt her med school application. They're making us less competitive among the application pool when we do apply because, well, like people who are in school right now can be in their research labs. They have in-person classes to experience, um, but we don't. So it's, I'm worried it's going to hurt us. To add another layer of stress, Divine is worried that if students come back to campus and are sent home because of an outbreak, she won't be able to go home. I don't know if I trust the school to keep me on campus if I go on campus, because if I get sent home, I have high risk family members. I would have nowhere to go. They always say we're in this together, and I just don't feel like that. After speaking with several students, I wanted to hear from the decision makers themselves and better understand the university's chosen COVID response. I also wanted to know where Northwestern currently stands in considering students returning to campus. 
I initially reached out to President Morty Shapiro, but he said instead to speak to Luke Figora. He's the Senior Associate Vice President and Chief Risk and Compliance Officer at Northwestern. What was the last straw that made the university kind of pull a 180 the last minute? Like, was there anything in particular because we were coming to campus, but then all of a sudden we weren't? So what happened? But I think it was a number of different things, you know, as, uh, as Morty said in a couple of announcements in the, you know, the announcement that went out more generally, you know, I think it was a combination of factors, obviously watching kind of trends around, uh, around the region, um, you know, both in, Il in Illinois and specifically in kind of Northern Cook County. Um, and then also, obviously, as we continue to get more information about what was happening at other colleges and universities across the country in terms of positivity rates, what that might mean um, for our own kind of situation on campus. And I think as, uh, as outlined some concerns about uh, whether we actually had, uh, you know, the, the right amount of space from a quarantine and isolation perspective to be able to make that work in a safe manner. Did the city of Evanston have a say in the university's decision? Uh, so uh, the university works closely with the city of Evanston, public health department, the mayor's office, you know, we're in pretty much constant communication with them, both on the planning and kind of and decision side, but ultimately it's a, it was a Northwestern decision. For first or second year students or whoever's on campus in the dorms, they have to be regularly tested once a week. Is that correct? That's correct. Yep. Okay. How do, how does the university ensure that? Uh, we've made open kind of uh, appointments every day for testing for undergraduate students to go in and, and get tested. And then we do, um, track that data, we kind of monitor that data um, and have been sending out kind of reminder messages so that if someone um, who we think could be here, so junior or senior or kind of an approved exception as a first or second year, um, if they aren't getting a test, um, but we think they, again, they're part of that kind of eligible population, we send out a reminder message. Um, and then again, if, if still no uh, action from there, we restrict kind of a wildcard access for uh, for campus. So so it, that uh, kind of main protocol would be that tie to access right now. At what point does the university deem it safe to fully reopen campus? I think all along we've said a couple different things. You know, we'd we'd monitor the trend. So is it stable over time, or are you seeing kind of increased transmission? So how you know how are is your campus more or less performing? as the general community um, kind of region is, are you uh, trending higher or worse than that? Is it stable kind of day over day, week over week? Um, and then, you know, I think importantly for us, you know, do you have the operational um, kind of bandwidth still to navigate, right? So, um, you know, some number of positive cases coming online every day, you can sustain um, fairly easily. Um, and again, the majority of our population will hopefully be healthy and those won't be serious kind of uh, serious cases, um, but in the event you start to overwhelm your quarantine or isolation space, um, or you can't uh, run the health service, whatever it might be, uh, if you're overwhelmed, I think that would, those kind of things would go into making decisions. According to you, how is Northwestern looking right now? Are we stable? Like, where are we? I think our undergraduate numbers have been uh, better, frankly, than, than we expected. Um, I think the, you know, the students that are here are taking it really seriously. We're seeing really good compliance with the testing uh, protocols. I mean, they're out of the you know, rough, let's call it 4,000 students that are kind of here, um, you know, undergraduate students that are here, a very small number um, of people that don't meet that weekly testing requirement, um, you know, for one, one we can, one reason or the other. 
I think the behavior from a conduct perspective has been, again, I won't say we've been perfect, but I think it's been good and, and uh, comparative to what we've seen at other schools. I think we've been optimistic about kind of what that's looking like and the ability to sustain it. For undergrads right now, I think on a seven day and a 10 day level um, are between 0.15 and 0.2. Um, you know, so if, if you're going to be able, if you could stay at a number like that, I think it's imminently possible that you can kind of sustain through a quarter um, with slightly higher density. I think you could probably even tick up a little bit higher and still feel comfortable from an, you know, from a health and safety perspective, as well as um, an operational perspective. So I think we've been pleasantly surprised with uh, how some things have gone. It gives us some hope that, uh, that we can do this. We can get through the rest of this quarter and do it again for the winter. A lot of students are debating whether or not to extend their leases in Evanston or Airbnbs or, you know, book flight tickets and a lot of uncertainty, as you can imagine. But what you're saying is from, you know, what we're gathering here, should we expect to be back at campus or should we sign those leases and extend them and just plan to stay home? Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I think as you could expect, I can't give you a, a firm, firm answer today, but I, I can say, you know, the um, message went out you know, last, I think it was last week or a week and a half ago now, um, that gave an idea of the timeline, and we are uh, absolutely on that timeline for kind of an announcement. So, you know, th I think there's some chance that we, um, you know, obviously by the kind of November one, um, that we have plan out there in terms of what students should expect. Um, and some of the surveys, you know, hopefully you got the survey and the message and, and completed it, you know, um, trying to understand, uh, you know, for all of our different segments of students, do you plan to live on, you know, if possible, would you like to come back on campus? Would you, do you plan to kind of extend a lease no matter what, whatever it might be? So I think within the next, I'm looking at my calendar here, kind of next week, week and a half, we'll have kind of certainty on that. Um, you know, what I would say alongside that, of course, is certainty um, with a big unknown, right? And none of us kind of know what um, what the rest of November, you know, what November is going to look like, what December might look like. I think um, as more and more things move indoors, um, and again, we see kind of what's happening across the state, we've absolutely got to kind of reserve judgment for what this could look like six weeks from now. But um, I think within the next, again, week, uh, week and a half or so, we'll have a, a firm announcement out there about what our plans are for the winter quarter. Yeah, and I think a lot of people are definitely reluctant to, I'll say, trust the university at this point, just because of that late decision in August. I know a lot of people who are very anxious to get back to campus, but they're afraid, you know, maybe three weeks into January, another email will come and be like, okay, go home. There's an outbreak. Yeah. I, you know, I feel pretty confident again. Um, never, you can never say never and you get, you, you have to reserve some judgment, but um, I say pretty, con pretty confidently that if the university makes the decision to bring students back kind of in full, uh, we'll be doing that with no expectations of the option to kind of send people home. So, you know, I think uh, you know, we've spent some time talking about this. You know, if, if everyone came back or if more people came back and, um, and there was, you know, like you said, an outbreak or things weren't as sustainable as they might look today, uh, you know, the more likely solution would be what you've seen at some other schools play out, right? Which is kind of a, a two-week pause in activity, more of a stay-at-home uh, kind of slow down in in-person activity while you try to ride that storm a little bit. Um, 
you know, it's been, it's become pretty clear that, you know, those schools that did send people home, um, I mean, that wasn't the right thing to do for a number of different reasons. And again, primarily for the, for the health of kind of, you know, the broader, you know, broader community. So um, I, yeah, I, I don't, I do not see, I see very, very little chance that we'd bring students back in January and then a few weeks later, try to send people home. Um, I'm hoping everyone stays diligent, you know, over these next few weeks. I think they're going to be really important, um, especially just to, again, reaffirm whatever decision we make for the winter. So um, I would just uh, echo that and uh, hope everyone's staying safe out there. Great. Thank you so much, Luca. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Angelina. From WNUR News, I'm Angelina Campanile. Nearly 200 Evanstonians and featured speakers gathered for Saturday's Rally for Democracy. Participants called for action against systemic racism, climate injustice, and the fair tax amendment. Reporter Olivia Lloyd has the story. Well, hello, my fierce Evanston friends. On Saturday afternoon, roughly 200 people showed up to the Evanston Rally for Democracy held in Dawes Park. As the leaves swirled around in the strong gusts of wind, community organizers, impassioned Evanstonians, and elected officials stepped up to deliver their messages. Vote him out! Vote him out! Uplift our communities, especially our communities of color. Climate action is social justice. Turn a renewed hope into action. Women will not go back. Bridget Samuels was the chief organizer of the October 17th rally, which originally started out as an offspring of a Women's March event. I've marched with Women's March before, and um, the whole story is I was scrolling Instagram. They um, were asking people to pledge to march, and I clicked, and I looked for Evanston or Chicago, and I didn't see any events planned, and there was a button that said volunteer to host, so I volunteered to host. And so for Evanston, we really wanted to make it more unique to our city's uh, issues, and we opened it up as this rally for democracy versus strictly women's march event, uh, but certainly women's issues are at the forefront today. In the span of two weeks, Samuels managed to organize the list of speakers that included elected officials such as Jan Schakowsky, Laura Fine, and Jennifer Gongershowitz. But Samuels' lineup didn't just feature people who hold office. Michaela Parisian is a senior at Evanston Township High School who spoke at the rally on behalf of Evanston Fight for Black Lives. It's not enough to sit around or show up to one rally or post one thing on Instagram. We actually have to get up and do so much more and really be devoted to this work in our community and find resources to be a part of the change that's happening here right in Evanston. After the rally, Parisian expressed a concern that others have also voiced about the Women's March as a whole, that it lacks intersectionality. I definitely wish there was more people and definitely more kind of diversity in the voices that spoke. There were a lot of white people. So um, I wanted to kind of shed light on like inclusivity with the activism that you have. So I know a lot of the time um, when people are fighting for whatever, they're not particularly fighting for every person that falls into like that category. So like women's rights, a lot of time, you know, black women or just women of color in general are not um, in, like included in that fight for a lot of people. So I thought that that was something that kind of needed to be talked about more today. Demonstrators held signs that read, Black Women's Lives Matter and Respect Life, Protect Water. 
a volunteer sanitized the mic and podium after each speaker. And at a table near the perimeter, Bennett Neidenberg and Becca Levy were attempting to get people to register to vote. Attempting is the key word here. Do you have an estimate of how many people you helped register today? Even so, another organizer of the rally, Kate Proto, said that events like these are more than just preaching to the choir. I feel, you know, you could say that about a lot of rallies and, and movements, right? That if everybody that decides to show up that day believes in roughly the same thing, what's the point? But I don't think that's how our democracy is formed, right? Like, if people feel like this is a moment to protect our democracy, and it's that big of an issue that we're facing, then even if many of us in this area agree that most of our policy mindsets may be similar, I think getting that additional push and motivation to talk with a family member who hasn't made up their minds yet. The closing speaker of the afternoon was former Illinois Senator Daniel Biss, who recently announced his campaign for the Evanston mayoral race of 2021. He spoke mainly in support of the Fair Tax Amendment, which Illinois voters will see on the ballot this election season. Our Constitution forces us to ask too much of the people who can pay the least and let the richest people off the hook. The Fair Tax Amendment would change Illinois' Constitution to allow the legislator to set a graduated income tax. Right now, the Constitution only allows for a flat tax, which is currently set to 4.95% regardless of income. The amendment itself wouldn't change the tax rates, but it would allow the Illinois legislator to do so. I'm guessing that most of your friends have a pretty good idea about how they feel about Donald Trump and Joe Biden, and they know how they're going to vote, and there's nothing you can do to change their minds, and maybe there's nothing you want to do to change most of their minds. But I bet, if you're like me at least, you know a lot of people who are excited to go vote for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, but they're still not totally sure what to do about the fair tax. Talk to them. Communicate with them answer their questions. This is critical. Our state needs this revenue and we need this fairness. Let us have a fair system that is just common sense. For WNUR News, I'm Olivia Lloyd. Next, reporter Alex Harrison takes us a half hour northwest to Northbrook, Illinois. Debate over a COVID death scoreboard turns into a clash between left and right. What Lee Goodman initially wanted when he constructed the COVID death scoreboard, a sign displaying the number of American deaths from COVID-19, was simple and straightforward. One was to remind people that we're still in the midst of a pandemic. They shouldn't stop wearing their masks. They shouldn't stop social distancing. The other is we want to tell people that our government is responsible for protecting the people. But only a week after the scoreboard was placed on the corner of Shermer Road and Walters Avenue in the center of Northbrook, Illinois, he now stood watching as the two sides of Shermer Road had a standoff right next to it. My wife and I, who did the most of the work on the sign, turned to each other and wondered if it was even, if anyone was going to pay any attention to it at all. We're shocked that it's gotten this much attention and this much of a backlash. It was only seconds after I met Lee that a man approached us and demonstrated exactly what he meant. Hey, this is the instigator right here. Yes, this is the guy. I am. And I am here because of Lee Goodman. Lee Goodman hates America. 
Across the street from the scoreboard, a large number of Trump supporters rallied with flags, signs, and megaphones. And across from them on the other side of the street, a group of counter-protesters had gathered, many of them holding signs supporting Joe Biden or denouncing Trump for his handling of the COVID-19 pandemic. Confrontations between the two groups happened almost constantly, most often from Trump supporters crossing the street to approach counter-protesters. And they only became more frequent and more intense as the demonstrations went on. It's a scene that has played out many times in many American cities over the last five years, and one that was inarguably charged by the ongoing pandemic. Only one thing was out of place. Almost none of the confrontations or arguments were actually about COVID-19 or the scoreboard. Oh, please. Oh, please. Peter Christos, a junior at Glenbrook North High School and the organizer of the Trump rally, was explicit that the scoreboard was the least of his concerns. We don't care about the sign. We're here to reopen our schools, advocate for our police, and we're here to do Trump 2020 because he's going to be our president and we're here to advocate it. The organizer of the counter-protest, Jack Auchler, had a similar reaction to the scoreboard. I don't know. I've heard that there was some controversy, but I saw it for the first time yesterday. I hadn't been down uh, to the triangle to see it. But obviously it stirred up some strong feelings. Northbrook is a North Shore suburb about a 30-minute drive from Evanston and is typically a quiet and amiable town. Even by the standards of the last five years, a flaring of political tension like the scene on Shermer Road is exceptionally rare. So rare, in fact, that several people were suspicious of outsiders joining the ranks of one side or another. Sam Israel, a Northbrook resident and passerby, says he overheard such thoughts from one of the Trump rally attendees. Yeah, I heard um, the guy with the thin blue line flag as we were walking by frankly say that he's just here to beat up commies with a stick. So that's exciting. The suspicion of outsider participation wasn't only directed towards the counter-protest. Ouchler also questioned where many of the Trump supporters had come from. I literally have not seen one Trump sign, not one. And yet look how many people just showed up supporting Trump. And I'm wondering how many of them are from Northbrook. I wonder if they're outside agitators. I mean, they're not being cruel or anything like that. There's no violence going on. But I wonder if there are people from outside Northbrook. Suffice to say, the standoff on Shermer Road did not spontaneously erupt from the controversy surrounding the scoreboard. Rather, both liberal and conservative residents of Northbrook at the event reported how long-standing grievances over culture and the behavior of the other side have riled both sides against each other, creating a powder keg that the COVID scoreboard set off. Christos complained of what he describes as a hostile environment towards conservatives at Glenbrook North. It's a fairly liberal area because that's what we're taught in school. We're taught to accept all these things, but when we think outside the box, we're labeled that we're bad people. We're not bad people. You don't see any of us burning or looting anything. We're out here being peaceful. The true aggressors are the left. Meanwhile, liberal counter-protester Rachel Waxstein said that her experience encountering militiamen at a recent Trump rally in nearby Highland Park prompted her to attend the counter-protest in case the same thing happened in Northbrook. When we heard about another pro-Trump rally, we wanted to come and check it out, really to make sure that the militia isn't here as well, and to make a stand and just, just say that, you know, there's another opinion out there and that our communities are liberal, progressive places. In any case, the week-long controversy surrounding the COVID scoreboard culminated in a standoff between the two sides of Shermer Road. Both waved flags, said chants, and passionately argued their side's messages as more Trump supporters crossed the street to confront the counter-protesters. 
Disruptions to traffic were common as people jaywalked from one side to the other or walked out into the shoulder to wave flags and signs. One woman even parked her car at the intersection, got out, and waved a Trump mask at the counter-protest before being chastised by police and drove off, holding up traffic for two green lights. In all that time, very few of the arguments or chants were about COVID-19 or the scoreboard. The Trump rally was scheduled from 5 to 9 p.m., and although I left at 6.30, both crowds had already grown considerably. By 8 p.m., public Snapchat stories showed the crowds had at least doubled, overflowing from the sidewalks and chanting much louder as police lights flashed around them in the dark. Once the tension in Northbrook snapped, it all flowed out at once. One of the Trump supporters in attendance was Ibrina Yunkovich, a Montenegrin immigrant to the United States. She told me how the situation she saw in Northbrook reminded her of how the Yugoslav wars began 30 years ago. And they started like this. There was one country, beautiful country, and then they started like this, and they had wars, Kosovo, Serbia, Bosnia, Croatia, all those, they destroyed it. I asked her how long it took to escalate from the tension in Northbrook to full-on civil war. Couple years, couple years, couple years. The question that follows from that is, of course, how can these divides be healed before it's too late? Gene Marks, the former village president of Northbrook, says a common understanding between partisans has to be rebuilt. We got to bring people back together. I mean, everybody is for a better America, whether you're a Republican, whether you're a Democrat. Uh, that's what we have to do. We've got to promote more continuity and, you know, you get more with love than anything else. And that's what they got to start promoting more. We got to stop this controversy in the country. But Lee Goodman, Watching from afar at how his scoreboard became a lightning rod for Northbrook's political tension was not quite as hopeful. I don't have a lot of hope that some of the individuals who you're seeing out here will ever be able to talk civilly to other people. They seem to prefer screaming at people. My hope, on the other hand, is that more, more socially considerate people will continue to be able to talk and listen to each other. From Northbrook, Illinois, this is Alex Harrison, WNUR News. We'll leave you tonight with Linus Holler brings us this week's weather report. Let's have a look at the weather charts. Fall is deepening and the first signs of winter will arrive, but I do have some good news for you. Summer isn't going out without a fight yet. Looking at the satellite image this Monday, we can see lots of clouds in the Great Lakes region. A cold front to our southeast and a high to the north have been pushing cool, moist air from Canada over Lake Michigan, which is why it has been so chilly and inconsistent for the last while. This will continue for the next few days. Tomorrow, Tuesday, expected to at least stay dry most of the day after Monday night's rain moves out to the east by the early morning hours. Though dry, it will remain mostly cloudy, with only a few sunny patches, especially in the morning. Temperatures will stay quite chilly, starting off at about 41 degrees Fahrenheit, 5 degrees Celsius, and reaching a high of 54 Fahrenheit, 12 Celsius, in the mid-afternoon. The wind will be light to moderate, with the gusts by the lake reaching peaks of about 30 miles per hour, 50 kilometers an hour. In the evening, a low-pressure system will be moving through Illinois from the southwest, bringing with it some precipitation, likely in the form of rain showers and some isolated thunderstorms. Because of the overcast skies, temperatures won't drop quite as much that night, bottoming it out at about 47 Fahrenheit or 8 degrees Celsius. Most of the rain will have moved on across the lake by the morning of Wednesday, 
giving way to a mix of sun and clouds for much of the day. With wind coming from northwesterly directions, temperatures will remain quite subdued though, with a high of 55 Fahrenheit, 13 Celsius. Clouds will increase and rain will move in with a warm front from the southwest or west as the evening progresses. Rain may be heavy at times and cause local flooding, so keep aware of that. Rain will continue Thursday morning, potentially with some scattered thunderstorms mixed in as well. Temperatures aren't expected to drop overnight, instead staying constant or rising slightly. Rain, showers and thunderstorms may be accompanied by gusty winds reaching around 30 miles per hour, 50 kilometers an hour. The rain will move off to the north at some point before noon, there is still some uncertainty in the forecast as to when exactly, and will be followed by largely sunny skies with only few clouds for most of the afternoon. Temperatures behind the front will rise to give us one last reminder of summer, climbing to a high of about 73 Fahrenheit, 23 degrees Celsius, potentially even a bit higher if the rain moves out earlier rather than later, bringing us likely the last day of something like summer this year. Friday will start off nice and warm as well, with morning temperatures expected to be about 63 Fahrenheit, 17 degrees Celsius. My name is Linus Heller with the weather forecast for WNUR News. That's all for the WNUR News at 6 p.m. For more news updates and reports, follow us on Twitter at WNUR News. On behalf of our producer and reporter, Angelina Campanile, reporters Olivia Lloyd, Alex Harrison, Linus Holler, and all of us here at WNUR, I'm Helen Bradshaw. You can listen to these and other stories of the day on our Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and online at WNUR.org. Your next news break will be Friday, October 23rd. Now, back to scheduled programming.